Today, we have a story from 1982. It's about a 23-year-old woman that set off on a motorcycle journey into the world that we will never know again. We have some original vintage audio from her trip as well, and we're going to speak with someone that even she doesn't know that we've spoke to yet. Enough mysteries there. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. we got a good one for you. Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free. maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. Best Rest Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you're going to want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system and will inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio. Made in the USA and comes with a lifetime warranty. And Motorcycle Consumer News Magazine just chose the Cycle Pump as the MCM top pick in their recent compressor comparison. www.cyclepump.com I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Graham Field. Austin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed March. Glenn Hickstead. Dr. Gregor W. Fraser. Dave Barr. Michelle Lanfear. Tiffany Coates. Herbert Schwartz. Brett Tatt. Zoe Cano. Nathan Millward. Graham Hoskins. Joe Rowe. Jeremy Craker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Robert Wick. Seth Simon. Elizabeth Martin. Hi, this is Fonzie, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. Turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using their unique strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. And that has gained them a top reputation for tough, reliable gear. www.greenchiliadv.com That's www.greenchiliadv.com The MotoBreeze chain oiler is powered by wind pressure that automatically adjusts for speed. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers oil to your chain with a felt pad that's mounted on your swing arm, which eliminates the problems of exposed nozzles near your sprockets. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets and forget about the messy spray oil. www.motobreeze.com. That's two eyes in there. www.motobreeze.com. Last September, we spoke with Elspeth Beard about a motorcycle trip she did 35 years ago. Now, at the time, she was working on a book. The book is now finished. It's called Lone Rider. It's the story of a 23-year-old woman who set off on a solo motorcycle trip around the world back in 1982, something relatively unheard of in those days for both sexes. In fact, on her trip, she met only two other motorcycle adventures in the two and a half years she was on the road. Now, the reason for the trip? She was brokenhearted from a recent breakup. She wasn't doing well in school. So she decided that a round-the-world motorcycle trip would fix her problems and prove herself. Now, to finance the trip, she worked two jobs, saved a bunch of money, and then she approached some motorcycle industry companies. Well, she wrote letters to them, really, back in the day. That's what you did. She wrote to these motorcycle industry companies for sponsorship and some motorcycle magazines to see if they'd be interested in her story. She was all but ignored by the company she wrote to, except for BMW, who wrote a quick letter back to say thanks, but no thanks. And she was then ridiculed by the editor of one of the most popular magazines of the day. Now, that should have been a discouragement. 
but instead it only fueled her ambition to achieve her goal, to travel the world on her motorcycle. Fast forward nearly 35 years, times have changed. Uh, my name is Elspeth Beard. Uh, I'm an architect and I rode my bike around the world uh, in 1982 to 1984. Elspeth, welcome back to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you very much. The last time we talked, you talked about your adventure and the fact that I think you had the book done at that point. You were, I guess, just in the in the sort of the whatever it takes at the last minute to get it published, which I imagine is a huge job. As a matter of fact, one of the things I remember you distinctly saying is that you didn't have a title for it. You do have a title now. I do. Uh, it was an agonizing decision trying to work out what to call it. Um, but in the end, I decided on Lone Rider. Uh, for many reasons, really, because I did find uh, sort of riding my bike around the world was a very lonely experience. And I also found that it sort of isolated me in a lot of ways because I was doing something that was sort of slightly out of the ordinary in those days. I found it very difficult to relate to other travellers who were, you know, with backpacks and and I couldn't relate to my parents because they couldn't understand what I was doing. So I, I found myself in a very isolated place, uh, which was very lonely. Um, so it wasn't only the kind of being, you know, riding my bike on my own. It was it was for sort of other reasons I, I, I chose that, that particular title. Well, this is back in 1982 that you left. You were two and a half years on the road. You started by flying to the United States and starting in New York and going from there. And you're riding uh, at that point, uh, what is it, 74 BMW? It was a 1974 R60-6, so it's a 600cc, yeah. So at the point, not a real old bike, what was it, eight years old or something? It was eight years old when I, yes, and it had... 45,000 miles on the clock when I left New York City. One of the things I find intriguing about your story is that when you did this trip, it was sort of before the internet, before GPS. It's um, It was a way of experiencing the world that you, you can't duplicate anymore. It's sort of an era gone by and it doesn't seem like it was all that long ago. Yeah, and I, I mean, I'm actually very glad that I that I did the trip when I did it. Um, I mean, at the time, I felt as if I was going out completely into the unknown. I felt as if I was an explorer. I mean, I know that probably sounds <laughs> a little bit silly now, but I really did. I felt as if I was on the edge of exploration, that I was going to countries. You couldn't find anything about them. You couldn't get maps. You didn't speak the language. You, I mean, there was no, you know, I mean, no research. You couldn't find out anything before you went there. And, and so, like, every day was an adventure. You know, you didn't know what you were going to find or where you were going to stay or... and. And I think, you know, for me, that's what made the trip. I mean, I'm sure people have trips now and I'm sure it's just different. But for sort of me, it, that's what I that's what I loved about it was the fact that it was so intense and so instant. And you sort of lived every minute of every day because you just never knew where you were going to stay or where you could get petrol or where you could eat or anything like that. 
Um, so yeah, and and I think it is something that is a bit lost um, now that uh, because I think people can sort of over plan things a bit because you have the ability to you know to book places and work out exactly what you're going to do and what you're going to see. Um, I, I think it's it's I think you you can almost organise a trip too too much that you take the you know the element of uh, of the unknown away and i think that is a shame but it is the thing isn't it we we do crave information and before we go to do something we sort of want to know or at least we think we want to know as much as we can know before we get there but yeah it, it does make you wonder and i talk with a lot of people about this and i think a lot of people agree especially if you if you didn't just start going out and exploring now i mean if you've been around and 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 doing things before the internet um before gps in particular before the internet uh, it's a different experience because nowadays, if you want to search anything, I mean, every, everything's clickable, right? You you just go and you look at it and you click on it. With your mm. trip, why did you leave though? I mean, you didn't know the internet was coming. You weren't trying to do something at the end of an era. You left for your own set of personal reasons. Yeah, I mean, I'd I've been riding bikes for about uh, six years. I started uh, when I was seventeen. I got my first bike, and then I got a slightly bigger one, and then uh, and then I finally bought my uh, my six hundred. And I started to do bigger trips, and it was really when I bought my my BMW 600 that I suddenly realised the sort of travelling potential of a motorbike. Um, and I rode a, a, um, around Europe. Uh, I did a, um, a trip across America. I flew out, out to Los Angeles, bought an old BMW 750, and rode it across to the East Coast. And I think really when I was doing that, I, I had this mad thought and I can't even remember where I had it I just thought wouldn't it be amazing if I could ride my bike around the world but it was one of those kind of crazy thoughts that you you have when you don't ever think you'll actually do it you you just it was just a sort of dream almost to to ride my bike around the world and it was the following year I I was coming to my 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 third year of my architecture training and um and I was uh, brokenhearted. I was, I was uh, th- this bo- boyfriend I was seeing at the time. He sort of finished our, you know, relationship in the February of the year of 1982. And so I found it really difficult to concentrate on my work. And so I re- did really badly in my finals. So in the June of that year, I was, I was really miserable. Um, I was brokenhearted. I had a lousy degree. And I was questioning whether I should carry on doing architecture or not. And I just thought, actually, you know, now, now might be the time to try and ride my bike around the world. So I just worked in a pub for three and a half months. I saved two and a half thousand pounds, and, and which I knew wouldn't be enough money. Um, but I hoped it would get me either to New Zealand or Australia where I could work and, and you know, for the next leg of the journey. Um, and that's it. I just packed packed my bags, and in October 1982, I shipped my bike to New York, flew out, picked it up, and off I went. But before you left, you did try and drum up some interest. You wanted to see if maybe you could get um, a, a bit of uh, a article or a few articles written for magazines. And you wrote, I guess, to everybody. I think you, you said you sort of wrote to everyone, manufacturers, the whole bit. But you got a letter back, which I thought was was just beautiful, from Biker Magazine. And you have a little passage of that in, the, in your book. Do you want to read that? Uh, yes, I could read that. It's page yes, I, 27, I actually, about halfway down. Yeah, I, 
I wrote about 27, 28, eight letters to um, various bike magazines, and I, I only got two replies. I got one from BMW saying, thanks very much, but we already know our bikes are pretty good, but have a good trip. <laughs> and, then, and then I got another one. The only, the only letter I got from the, bike, from the British bike press was from Bike Magazine, and it says, Dear Elspeth, uh, Breck, oh, and just to put it into context, I sent them a photograph of myself sitting on my bike with my letter. Anyway, it says, Dear Elspeth, Brecken said he'd uh, write this letter, but he can't because his tongue's jammed in his typewriter. Julian asks if you've got an eight-foot-tall husband who's also a karate expert. Mike Clement has already formed the Elspeth Beard Appreciation Society and wants to know where in the world you're going to be so he can get there first. Me, I'd like to offer you sponsorship around the world, but I think it would be a waste and a shame for London. Best wishes, Dave Coldwood. Wow. So that was the response. <laughs> That's the way women got treated in those days. We were just not taken seriously. Yeah, we were just a joke. We really were. We were just a joke. Anybody, any any woman riding a big bike that wanted to seriously, you know, do anything, we were just a joke. The amazing anyway. thing is, is that he writes the letter back to you. I mean, and making fun of you. I mean, you know, it's one thing to just toss it aside and say nothing, but but they had no problem writing back telling you how foolish you were um, in that letter. I just think that's incredible, and it doesn't seem like it's all that long ago. Yeah, and that's actually what irritated me more, was the fact that they took the trouble to write back, and then they wrote that. That's mm. what annoyed me almost more than what they wrote, because that sort of attitude I was well used to. But the fact that they actually sat down and bothered to take the time to reply, and then they wrote that. I mean, it was unbelievable. Did that help fuel you to go, or, or at this point where you're already going regardless? No, it, well, I was going, but it certainly helped. It certainly made me a lot more determined. I mean, it's attitudes like that that just kind of fueled this fire inside me, you know, that I was so determined to prove all these people wrong that, you know, that a woman can ride around the world and, you know, and that I can do it. Okay, I'm just going to stop this interview for a minute here. That's an incredible interaction. Elspeth sends out letters to all the magazines in the UK and gets only one response. You can imagine the excitement. She picks up the letter from the box, opens it expecting what? Maybe some questions about the trip, maybe a request for more information, maybe even a sponsorship. But no, it's a letter degrading her and laughing at her. And, and after we did this interview, I asked Elspeth, where is Dave Calderwood of Biker Ma or Bike Magazine now? <laughs> where is this guy? Yeah. He's still around. Is he? And he nearly came. Yeah. And well, the really annoying thing was that because I had a book launch at the BMW uh, place here uh, where I live and he was invited and he doesn't know about the letter. As far as I know, he doesn't know about the letter and he hasn't read the book, I don't think. <laughs> and um, he was he was put on the short list um, because so many people wanted to come to the um, uh, launch that they that they filled it up really quickly and then he, and unfortunately he applied just after they'd filled up the number so he was put on the short list so he didn't come which is really annoying because I've never met him and I've never spoken to him. oh really <laughs> uh, 
I know, never. Um, <laughs> well, Elspeth goes on to say that um, he's probably retired now and it was a long time ago. Actually, what she does say is she says if she meets him. But actually, when I do, I'm going to almost thank him because it was people like him and letters that, 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 you know, that he wrote that actually spurred me on and made me more determined to do the trip. Well, as it turns out, Dave is still around. He is still working, and he's working for a different publication now. We managed to get in touch with him and talk to him about this letter that he sent to Elspeth. Uh, my name is Dave Cordobert. I'm from London originally, but these days I live in Dorset in the southwest of the UK. I'm a journalist. Dave, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Well, thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's just great to be there with you. Well, back in the early 80s, you were the editor at Bike Magazine. That's correct. What was the industry like back at that time when you were the editor of, of Bike Magazine, early 80s? What was, what was happening? What was the feel of it? Well, the bike industry was quite uh, buoyant at that point. Um, you know, sales of motorcycles were good, uh, in the UK, that is, and, and, and overseas as well, and other countries as well. So the bike industry was quite, quite strong. Uh, there was a big worry about the number of accidents, a lot of... Yeah, the accidents in the UK particularly were were, were were gripping the minds of a lot of people in government. If it's, people were just throwing themselves off motorcycles. Uh, and for us on Bike Magazine, we were the leading magazine in the UK and one of the biggest in the world outside the US. So, you know, it was a good time for us. But there were things, there were things were changing as well as the accident rate sort of concentrating people's minds. There was also the fact that uh, the the ownership of motorcycles was shifting from, say, younger lads up to older, slightly older people in their early 30s and maybe later. Interesting that they sort of didn't see that. <laughs> I mean, we look back in hindsight and can see that we, we realized there was a huge chunk of the population that was into motorcycles, and then we seemed to miss the young ones coming in as things went along, and that was just at the start of that. That's right, yeah. I mean, we, when I started on Bike Magazine in the... Uh, late 70s, we had a target reader who was a 23-year-old guy who uh, was a skilled metal worker in the north of England. And that was the guy we kept in mind all the time. Uh, but it changed. And, you know, like nowadays, the average biker in the UK, at least, is somebody who's in their mid-40s, uh, got a bit of money, and probably works in an office. So when you're writing and when you're thinking about what to cover, what you're aiming at is a 23-year-old male who is a blue-collar worker. In in the, in the in the late seventies, early eighties, that was the target reader. That's right. Yeah. So you must. Have, I mean, this is this is a big magazine, as you said, the biggest magazine of its kind. You're the editor there. You've got a, a like a a real top position. You've got to be inundated with all kinds of people contacting the magazine, wondering if you're interested in what they're doing. All the time, and uh, you know, it's, because we're on a big magazine, the manufacturers are always talking to us, and we were talking to them. You know, the equipment suppliers were always trying to show us things uh, and our readership we we encouraged our readership to to uh, to, to join in to many things and uh, to, to let us know what they thought and they weren't you know they, they let us know what they thought about articles in the magazine and either by phone or by mail uh, of course we had no internet then so you know, it was uh, it's it only those two methods well, back in the early 80s, there was a young woman by the name of Elspeth Beard that sent you a letter um, as the editor for Bike Magazine, and she was asking <laughs> if you were interested in her upcoming round-the-world trip. 
And, and, and you responded to her, and by luck or chance or happenstance, Elspeth actually kept the letter. She ended up doing the trip and, and writing a book. Do you remember the letter? Do you remember Elspeth? I don't remember uh, either the letter or Elspeth at the time, um, I regret to say. Um, but, I, you know, I, we were inundated with people asking for either sponsorship or help with getting sponsorship from manufacturers. And usually my reply to them would have been, you know, just do the trip, uh, keep us in mind, take lots of photographs, take notes, write your story, and when you come back, we'll have a look at it. That was the way I usually replied to people who who wrote to me. Unfortunately, with Elspeth, I don't know why, don't know why, but that day I did, you know, I wrote a really stupid letter. So um, I'm embarrassed about it now, to be honest. Well, she, she sent you a photograph of herself on her motorcycle, I guess, to show their enthusiasm, show she was a biker. She included the letter um, asking if you were interested in coverage, et cetera, maybe a sponsorship. Yeah. And, and what she wrote back was, was really, it was, it was almost like, I, I sort of pictured this in my imagination. You're sitting around on a Friday afternoon with the, the guys at the office and wrote back sort of a, you know, a, a tongue in cheek letter, but a bit of a slap in the face to her too. It was, um, and, and your last line was me, uh, uh, this is after you made remarks about other people in the office office and what their comments were uh, supposedly at the time. This The last line was me. I'd like to offer you a sponsorship around the world, but I think that'd be a waste of time and a shame for London. Yes. Yeah, I'm not quite sure what I was trying to say at that point, but it wasn't good. How old were you at that time? 20, 29. I worked it out. 29. Hmm. I should have been more mature and been out and come up with a better answer, but unfortunately I didn't. <laughs> yeah, it's a shame you don't remember the letter, but but obviously that was the tone, wasn't it? I mean, you sort of quipped off a letter and, and sent it off, and, and clearly by what you wrote, you weren't taking her seriously. You didn't think she would end up doing this trip. No, I didn't. And I, and I understand that what she sent in was a picture of herself, and I can understand. I think now what happened was the picture showed a very attractive young woman, uh, very young and she's proposing to ride this big BMW motorcycle around the world. It just, you know, riding around the world, it was, it's not, you know, it's, it's not easy. That's an obvious thing to say, but even, you know, even though people now do ride around the world, you know, have, have ridden around the world, it's still a monster task. And back then we were just, just we just heard about Ted Simons having completed his first trip around the world. We'd seen his book, read how hard it was, and if just there just seemed to be no way that this young girl setting up on a BMW would ever be able to achieve that. So you know, it, it just seemed it just seemed ridiculous to us in the office that she should, should even try. The other thing is in the bike magazine in bike magazine's office. You know, we in the magazine we had a persona of um, you know being very free and easy and always on the road and that kind of thing. But reality is, as you probably know, in an editorial office. Most of the time is spent in front of a perishing computer or a laptop or a, or a typewriter in those days. You spend a lot of time writing. You spend a lot of time on the phone to people. And you spend a lot of time planning things. Um, so the, uh, you know, when we have a bit of light relief, such as a picture come in with a, an outrageous, uh, outlandish request, you know, we kind of enjoy the moment and have a laugh. Um, that's just the, way, just the way editorial offices are. Very hard-working places, very busy places. People are heads down trying to do things, and it's not you know something like this comes in, and it's really unusual to have some you know a girl like Elspeth materialise like that. 
And I think possibly that's part of the reason why we, well, I reacted the way I did. I don't blame my colleagues. It's uh, we'll be fair on them. <laughs> But that would probably be a, a standard sort of feeling or, or response to that at that time, wouldn't it? Yes, I think so. And, and quite honestly, probably now as well. I mean, I think people are, you know, I, I received such a letter now that I certainly wouldn't make such a, uh, an offensive and disparaging uh, you know, reply. But I probably would say, I you know, certainly wouldn't offer a sponsorship. I would probably say something like, you know, right, go, go do it write a story and we'll, we'll look at it. But um, even now, it's a very hard thing to do, to ride a motorcycle around the world. But back then, with no internet, with you know, motorcycles that weren't always as reliable as they are now, it was an incredible task. What would you say to Elspeth now, having looked at this and having talked about what we did? Uh, well, you know, great job. What a, what a fantastic trip. I never thought you'd do it, but you did it. And you know, well done. That's, that's, that's a fantastic thing to do. It's kind of interesting because she said that your response was really something that fueled her. I mean, because somebody could get a response like that and, you know, have the wind knocked out of their sails and sort of think, okay, well, forget it. This is silly. But instead, she took your yeah. letter as sort of fuel. I mean, you fueled her as in part to do this. Well, yes. Um, uh, if, if some good came out of it, then great. If it really sort of fired her up and made her more determined to do it, then then that's great. Uh, I'd still rather that I hadn't written the letter. <laughs> How far did you get on your trip before you thought, maybe they're right, maybe I shouldn't be doing it? Well, I had a few moments. I mean, just, just waiting at, at the airport when I was, um, you know, waiting to catch the flight over to New York. I was, you know, I had all, suddenly I had all these doubts, you know, what am I doing? Am I, I must be mad, you know? And I started crying and, but I, you know, I got on the plane and actually once I, once I, I got to New York and once I was reunited with my bike and sort of got on the road, um, you know, it was a lot easier. And then I really just took it sort of day by day and just sort of managed, you know, in three and a half months, I, I found myself on the on the West Coast in America and sorted out my flight to New Zealand and got to Australia. And, you know, you just you just have to take it step by step. At what point did you did you know that you're doing the right thing where you sort of just everything felt right, everything fit in? I think when I got to Sydney, actually, that was probably because Sydney, I, I was there for seven months and I almost made that a sort of second home. And and actually, I loved it in Sydney. Uh, it was a place I could rest. Uh, I, I, I had two jobs. So I was working, you know, like all day and I had uh, a job in a pub in, in the evening. So I was working most evenings in the pub and also weekends. So I didn't have much free time. But it was a very exciting time. Um, and then Sydney was a very vibrant, well, I'm sure it still is, a very vibrant, uh, young place. And there was a lot going on. And as I said, it was just, I, I just sort of felt home from home there. And I had friends there as well that I could stay with when I first arrived. So, so I was, you know, I was lucky. Um, and then I think riding across Australia, which I found really, really hard. It was, I found it a very harsh country. And I think when I when I got to the the uh, west coast of Australia, I realised that this boyfriend who had uh, dumped me before I left on my trip, I hadn't thought about him 
for a single second on my entire trip across Australia. <laughs> <laughs> so I sort of, I sort of thought, yeah, you know, I've kind of cured myself of my broken heart. Um, so yeah, so it was probably Australia was a sort of, sort of turning point. Uh, and then, you know, the far eastern India was just sort of, you know, finding other things about myself and, and you know, making my way home. Well, you started out in America. Well, that was because you had friends there. Was that why you started there or you thought it was going to be an easier start? I thought it was going to be an easier start. I Because with two and a half thousand pounds, I, uh, you know, I thought I could get, as I say, to either New Zealand or Australia, which is English speaking. Uh, it was relatively easy for uh, people with a British passport to get a job in New Zealand or Australia. And because I traveled across America the year before, it was a sort of known quantity. And, and the other thing is, I think it was much, it was, it was really much harder for me to turn back because with a big ocean between me and home, um, it would have been harder to turn back. Whereas if I'd gone the other way, you know, I might have got as far as Greece or Yugoslavia or Turkey. And I thought, mm, I don't, you know, this is a mistake. Um, and I might have been tempted to turn back. And, and it was, ter- you know, I was only 23. So to sort of venture off into you know, Turkey and Iran and, and Pakistan and India kind of straight off. It, it, it was a hugely daunting thing for me, whereas America was something I could, you know, in my mind, I could deal with that. And, and I felt I could cope with that. And and I sort of hope by the time I, you know, I got to those other countries that I would be, you know, more travel wise and more prepared and, and mentally be able to cope with them better. When you're in the States, you, you describe in the book one incident you had with um, some motorcyclists coming up alongside you. Can you tell us that? <laughs> yeah, that was in, it was somewhere on the West Coast. I think it was in California, but it might have been Arizona. I, I can't remember. It's somewhere on the West Coast. And uh, it was an empty road. And I saw these uh, five or six bikes coming up behind me. Um, and then they kind of, came up either side of me and then one kind of pulled in fright and then, then they tried to sort of box me in and um and I think it was because I because when I left on my trip I had very long hair so I used to wear a plait which used to hang down the back of my jacket so they obviously could see I was a I was a woman um and then they just kind of played with me you know trying to push me off the road and um and I, fortunately, the, uh, the road started to come, you know, quite windy and twisty. And um, so I just kind of accelerated. <laughs> and fortunately, my, my bike handled a bit better than theirs. Um, so I managed to sort of outride them and left them behind. So it's good, yeah. Because they're riding, what, choppers or Harleys? They were riding the choppers, yeah. yeah. I don't know what, yeah, I think, I think they were Harleys, I don't know. But they had the wheels kind of, you know three or four feet right out in front of them. So, um, they, you know, the bike didn't didn't handle as well as mine. And, I, and it was funny, it was instances like that. I didn't really get scared. I think when I was actually on my bike, I felt, um, I felt as if nobody could really touch me or nobody could really harm me when I, when I was actually riding my bike because I could always ride away. I could always get away. It's not as if you were like on a street and you were cornered and you, you know, but, but when I was on my bike, I felt, I felt actually quite, quite safe. Did you, was that because of the bike itself? You mean, because you're riding a BMW, you thought it was sort of superior to the bikes that were around or? 
just no, because of mobility. I well, I th no, I think it was just it was just the mobility, but also when I was on the bike wearing a full face helmet, most people assumed I was male anyway. So, um, I mean, after that incident with the with the biker gang, I, I actually always made sure that I tucked my plaid sort of in my jacket, so so nobody could see. Um, but I think I just felt, yeah, when I was on the bike, most people thought I was male. And and then I could always kind of ride away from situations. So I, I felt quite quite strong actually when I was riding my bike. So was being a, a woman on this trip sort of an advantage at times, a disadvantage at others, and you sort of worked it back and forth to what you needed? Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. I mean, many people say, "Do you think that it, it was you know uh, you know a disadvantage being a, being a woman?" And I actually don't at all. I think you have to. Um, I think you have to be very aware of um, of, of how you of how you look, and I think, as I said, because when I was on the bike, everyone assumed I was male, so I kind of played on that. Um, but then at the same time, if you needed help, you know, I could whip my helmet off and shake my hair <laughs> <laughs> and smile nicely, and uh, and people would help me. So you know. It's, it's, I think you just have to learn to, to kind of use what you have and be very aware of it. Um, and I know in certain places, like in the Far East, and you know, people were. I mean, the locals were incredibly kind and welcoming. And I think some of them, I, I felt that, you know, when they saw me camping, sort of out in a field somewhere, they almost wanted to, you know, sort of help me and protect me. So they'd, they, you know, they'd call me in and, no, no, you can't stay out there. Come in, come in. And, you know, as if they didn't want me staying out there because it was too dangerous for me. And I don't think I would have had that if I'd been a bloke. I think, I think it was because I was a woman on my own. You did get people who wanted to help me and protect me and stop bad things happening to me. Um, so I think, I, I think... You know, I, I wouldn't say it's a, it was an advantage, but it certainly wasn't a disadvantage as long as you're... And I was always very careful with what I wore as well. I mean, I wore very baggy clothes. I didn't uh, I didn't try and, uh, you know, um, uh, sort of attract any attention. Uh, I mean, I never wore makeup or anything like that. I never wore jewellery. So I think... Um, I think if you're, as I say, if you're careful, then, you know, it, it can be, an you know, I mean, you can make it work, work for you. And it wasn't, I mean, being a female, it wasn't exactly a get out of jail free card every time. You, you had uh, trouble, I think, in India, didn't you? You had a lot of trouble, I, I think. Uh, was it getting your bike back or getting across the border or something? Uh, yes, yeah, so I had a lot of problems getting out of India because I was there when um, it was the storming of the Golden Temple in 1984. So there was a lot of trouble in the uh, state of the Punjab. Um, so basically, this, the Punjab state was closed to all, all Westerners. But the only road crossing border out of India was uh, through the Punjab. So uh, we had to get this permit, which sort of didn't exist, and we were sent to buildings that didn't that hadn't been built yet to see people who had, who, who didn't exist. I mean, it was just it was just a nightmare, absolutely nightmare. Um, but anyway, we finally managed to get out um, out of India uh, into Pakistan. But India, I found a difficult country. I mean, it, it made a huge difference after I met um, I met 
Robert, who was a Dutch guy. And we met about halfway through India. And uh, I mean, went traveling on my own in India was, was really, really tough. I mean, being constantly surrounded by 20, 30 men just staring at you uh, every single time you stop. Um, I mean, I never felt as, as if I was in danger or anything. It was just this constant staring that I found really quite hard to deal with. Um, but after I met Robert uh, and then we traveled together through uh, through Pakistan and Iran and Turkey, and I was really glad to have him. It made a huge difference. Traveling with another person is just a completely different trip because all of a sudden you've got somebody else there. I mean, not only to talk with, to discuss the problems with the bikes, to, to help doing the repairs, but it's also, you know, if one of you runs out of petrol, you can leave one bike there. You can you take the other bike to get some petrol and come back. It's, it's just a completely. And also when you leave your bike anywhere to go to the market and buy some food, you can leave somebody there looking after the bikes. I mean, it's just a massive difference traveling with two people. So would you prefer that rather than traveling alone? I, it's funny because I did. When I, I mean, certainly, certainly after I met with Robert, uh, I, I, I definitely prefer traveling with two people. Obviously, it has to be the right person. Sure. Um, and Robert and Robert and I fell in love, and so it was, it was a. But there were other parts of the trip where I'd, you know, I'd meet people and we travel together for a week or something. And often after after a week, I, I kind of almost craved to be on my own again. So. I think obviously it has, it has to be the right person to travel with somebody for a long period of time. Um, but I do like traveling on, on my own. I, I think, um, I don't know, it's, um, it's difficult to explain. I think you, uh, I tend to think a lot more, um, but it's not so much of a holiday. Do you find you miss out on things when you're traveling with someone else and it's easy to, to become so centered on each other that you sort of miss the connections with other people? Or actually, you're, you're even not forced to, are you? I mean, whereas in, in other cases, when you're alone, you're forced to deal with someone, you're forced to sort of put yourself out there. Did you find that was sort of missing? Yeah, it was completely different. As I said, when I when I was on my own, and these locals would invite me in, and because uh, they had this need to protect me, and the minute I started travelling with Robert, that just completely that finished. Yeah, it stopped completely because suddenly I didn't need their protection. I had somebody to you know to look after me or protect me. So it was definitely different, it, and it and it was good in some ways, and but you missed out in others. Which makes you wonder if you were alone in that problem with India, would you have had better success on your own? Because really what happened was you didn't get out. And this sort of says something. This is why I was interested in that part of the story. This sort of says something about, I think, about you as a person or or maybe people in general. I'm not really sure when we really get pushed. But you didn't get out by following the rules and, and doing what you were told and, and doing it all legally, did you? That wasn't the method that worked. No, and I think that's one thing that I learned very much uh, by the you know, by doing the trip was that you do learn to think out of the box. You do learn, uh, yeah, not to do as you're told. <laughs> um, and, and you have to break rules or break or bend rules. Um, otherwise you don't survive. And that's the bottom line. And you do also learn, you know, you don't actually believe anything you're told. So in certain countries, 
you know, if somebody tells you, you get, you've got to go there or do this, you just go, you know, everything you, you, you know, you look at and you question everything and you doubt everything. Um, and you're very much, you know, you're, you're very much sort of doing it entirely on your own. You don't actually, ha- you know, I mean, you don't, you know, rely on anybody else. It's the only person you can rely on is yourself. And you have to make the decisions and you don't rely on anybody to do anything. When do you know you can do it, though? Like, like how do you know you can get away with it? I mean, at one point, you, your idea, and that was coming from you, you said that you and Robert should ride through roadblocks, just race through them and, and wave at them and, and, and ignore them. I mean, these are military checkpoints. How do you know you're not going to get shot? How do you know you can bend the rules in that case? Well... I just think you have to push it. Each time you push a little bit further and you, you, I mean, I I just, I just didn't think that they, that they would have the guts really to shoot. That was basically it. I thought they would be too scared. And a lot of these things, it's, it's sort of, it's all sort of appearance, but not much substance. And, um, I don't know. I just, you know, we, we didn't have much to lose, I suppose. Um, so I just went for it. What do you mean didn't have much to lose? Because your age? You know, I mean, 23, 24 no, years but, old, you're well, sort of like that, aren't you? Yeah, but I, I mean, things we were, you know, we were completely stuck in the country. They wouldn't let us leave. They wouldn't let us get out. I was desperate to get out. Robert was, you know, really struggling with, with dealing with the country. Um, and we just had to get out any which way we had to get out. So we just kind of pushed the boundaries as much as we could. And, and after you've been through one roadblock and you managed to get through uh, or just ride through it, um, and you just kind of, and we were lucky because there, there was a very heavy uh, kind of monsoonal downpour, so it was pouring with rain. So a lot of the guards and the soldiers went into their huts so by the time we've kind of weaved our way through the barrels of the roadblock, um, you know, we were gone before they came out. So we, we were, you know, luck played into our hand as well. And no fear, though, of the next morning or something, they're going to track you down and say, hey, you. No, I didn't, actually. I was completely, I don't know what it was, but I was so fearless in those. <laughs> well, that's why I was, I was going to say, does that come with the age? Like, because like, I mean, I, you know, I was that age once too. And there's a certain, I, I don't know, there's a certain immortality, I think you, you feel when you're young, or maybe the fact you just feel like you don't care. But then when you get older, <laughs> things change, you know, you don't think the same way. You don't have, I yeah. hate to say you don't have the same, uh, um, uh, boldness, but yeah. you, you, you don't, think, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I felt I was invincible almost, you know, nothing was going to stop me. And, you know, I never took no for an answer. And I, I was just, you know, I was unstoppable. And, and, and as you say, and I'm sure that comes with youth and naivety and, and you don't, you know, that, but it all kind of helps to, have this attitude that, you know, that, that I'm invincible and no one's going to stop me. Would you have that now? I still have it now to a certain extent. I think, I think now I'm more conscious of uh, the limits I can push my body to because, you know, I'm 58 now. So um, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't have, uh, I can't do, I mean, I can't ride for like a thousand miles in one go, like I used to be able to. And I can't, you know, I'm just physically, um, 
I'm not quite so um, uh, robust as I used to be, should I say. But I still very much have the same attitude uh, to everything else I do in life, to my work. And I mean, a lot of the projects I do, I'm an architect, a lot of the projects I do are difficult, awkward. Uh, and we get constantly told by all the, you know, the planners and the authorities that, you know, no, you can't do this. And I just find different ways to do it, different, different approaches, different, you know, think out of the box. And I always get there. So still, since the trip that changed you, because I remember you said that before, it, it, it really changed the way you, uh, the way you felt about yourself in life. But I mean, you're still a rebel. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you're saying I it. I mean, because so. again, that's just like the yeah. water crossing, isn't it? They're telling you, no, you can't do this, and you're going back and saying, okay, so how can we do this? <laughs> exactly. But I think that's, I think that's a good attitude to have in life. I think you, you, you know, I think uh, I think people should push push uh, boundaries, and uh, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else, mm-hmm. I don't. You know, I think you have to be, you know, it mustn't it mustn't hurt or harm anybody else, but. If it's sort of dealing with, you know, petty officials and uh, rules and regulations that don't really apply because they're not written for the sort of project that you're doing or the, you know, I I think, I I think you have to, I think you have to push things. And the thing is with rules, they're just made up by people just like us, you know, who have decided to make up a rule. So why shouldn't you challenge it? Yeah, exactly. But also it's rules made. It's, uh, I mean, rules are, you know, are very general and they don't deal with situations that are a little bit out of the ordinary. And a lot of the projects I do are out of the ordinary. So you have to bend the rules. You have to, you know, do it in a, in a different way. But I, but I actually love that. You see, I, I love finding um, different ways to do things and approach things. And I guess you've got to be the type of person that doesn't get rattled very easy. Um, I, I remember one part in the book you talked about um, renting a, a cheap motel and you had to go in and deal with this guy that uh, was was sitting there, the sort of a, a less than clean looking guy. you remember that story? Uh, yes, the yes, the guy in, in um, uh, it was Mississippi, I think. Is that the one? Mm-hmm. And, and he's, he's there, I think it's a $10 room, isn't it? Somebody, somebody led you yeah, there. Yeah, $10 and Mr. Room. Stingray, yeah. that's what the guy was trying to think of. <laughs> yeah, well, first of all, there was Stingray Man, and he took me to this, to this other guy in the hotel. But actually, he turned out to be okay. I mean, he kind of tried it on, but, you know, he turned out to be okay in the end. You know, he gave me a, uh, you know, a, a, a $20 room for $10. And uh, he offered to he asked me whether I needed anything from the grocery store. So, you know, we got there eventually. But, um, you know, initially he sort of tried it on. But uh, but it can be unnerving, I mean, to say the least, to, to have to deal with that sort of thing that you had to with the guy who, who ends up bringing you to the hotel. He follows you into your room. That's That can be unnerving, that sort of thing. But it didn't, from the way I read it, it didn't seem like it rattled you a whole bunch. It didn't actually. It, 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 it's, I mean, I, I, really, I really kind of thought, oh, God, here we go again. And that was all I, that, that was the way I kind of approached it. And, and I think I was, I, I always tried to be very sort of polite and never lost my temper. And I don't know, I just, it, it, I just sort of treated them more as a kind of a nuisance, really. <laughs> 
<laughs> I know that sounds a bit odd, but I, I wasn't really rattled and I wasn't really that scared. But if you let your imagination run, which I think a lot of people do, then you, I mean, you know, the, the possibilities go on from there. But, but that, really, that really says something about the way we think about things, doesn't it? Because if you do let your imagination run, I mean, I think there's a certain amount of healthy imagination you can do. Okay? I mean, obviously you have to be careful and you have to you know, think about things and try and think it through what could happen. But I mean, you can get carried away, can't you? Absolutely. And I think there's, you know, there's many instances where you get like two plus two equals five and then you're kind of five plus five equals 25. And then all of a sudden you're, you know, you're, you're, yeah, you're kind of really scared. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You're really frightened and scared. And, but it's actually all in your head. And, and I think you do have to be very aware of that. And I think the other thing is, is that, you know, the, I mean, the other thing that I learned like on the trip, when I left on the trip, I had this sort of thing in my mind that you know everybody out there was going to be this aw- awful people who were going to be out to steal from me and 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 uh, rape me and beat me up and and all this kind of stuff and you learn that actually you know 98% of the world the people are just like you lovely people helpful people who go out of their way to be nice and kind and do what they can and it's an incredibly small proportion of people who, you know, who do try and steal and do all these not very nice things to you. And so, yeah, the, actually the ratio and the proportion is pretty good. Um, and I think that's, that's what I learned as well, that most of the world, the people are, you know, lovely, kind people. We're going to take a one-minute break and be right back. Stay with us. we get got a lot more coming up, including some of that vintage audio that I talked about at the start. Often when we think of tours, we think of tourists being led around to snap photos in iconic places, maybe with a quick trip to the gift shop. Well, if that's not your style then The Good Adventure Company may be. The Good Adventure Company runs guided trips for experienced riders into Copper Canyon, Mexico. No hand-holding on that trip. You've got to be an experienced rider to go. And they also have a two-up tarmac-only trip coming up. you got to drop by their website, www.good-adv.com. And by the way, Good Adventure Company also sells products from their website. They sort of specialize in soft luggage. They've got tires, everything really for motorcycles. Drop by the website and have a look. And J.J. Lewis, the guy behind the company, says the ethos for the Good Adventure Company is to make the world a better place to live and ride. And they do that by donating proceeds to charitable causes. So it's, it's very cool. I mean, you're buying something from them, maybe a trip, maybe a product, and you know that some of those proceeds are going to charitable causes. You need to have a look at what they're doing. Drop by their website, again, www.good-adv.com. And of course, anytime you're dealing with them, be sure to mention you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Scott Wright is the owner of IMS Products, and Scott himself is a, a serious rider, racer too, as a matter of fact. He's a former Baja 1000 winner. And Scott stands behind his foot pegs that are made for adventure riders. IMS Products is a household name in the racing scene. They're known for their fueling systems and their shift levers. And now for a range of some really nice foot pegs. 
I was talking with Scott a few weeks back and he was telling me just what goes into the design of the foot pegs. And we talked about different things like the design of the teeth and the design of even the angles of the undercut on the underside is meant so that it doesn't hold mud in there so that the mud actually drops out. It's called a watershed design. But he said that they even test them by crushing them in a press to the point where the inner parts of the peg were touching. And when they released it, there was no damage except for the mark where the two sides contacted. Now, of course, you and I will never do that to our foot pegs. We'll never put them to that kind of abuse. But it does say something about the the IMS dedication to quality. I mean, I, I really like that. These are cast certified 17-4 stainless steel foot pegs that not only look great, but for me, and I'm, I'm, I have them on my bike, they've done a lot for the feeling and handling of the bike. It's, it's incredible. So made in the USA with a lifetime warranty, www.imsproducts.com. Drop by the website, have a look at the pegs, and make sure you tell them you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. The book is done now, Lone Rider, the first British woman to motorcycle around the world. And uh, it's out in hardcover now, and you've been sort of doing a, a bit of a tour promoting the book. What did you learn through doing the book in particular, not so much the trip? Uh, that was a very, yes, doing the book was actually almost as difficult as doing the original, <laughs> the original <laughs> Doing journey. the trip originally. <laughs> yeah, it really was. It was, well, I think also because it was 30, it was 34 years ago. So sort of trawling back and going through all my diaries and, and, and my tapes, because my, my dad sent me a, um, um, uh, a micro cassette recorder when I was in Australia so from Sydney all the way home, I used to talk into this tape machine. And when the tapes were full, I used to send them home. So um, I, I had all my tapes from my whole journey back and listening to myself um, when I was 23, 24 years old in the middle of Thailand or whatever. It was just bizarre. I mean, it really was. And I, I hadn't listened to them ever since I got back. Oh, not really? Once. Wow. No, I didn't listen. Well, to I mean, I guess as soon as you got back, there's no interest. You you just finished it, and and then at that point, you exactly. shelved it because you did try and sell the story when you came back too, didn't you? You pretty much got the same response for, as you did before you left. I did. I I I, I contacted the. Uh, I I actually contacted Bike Magazine again. Um, <laughs> who well, you're you're a glutton <laughs> you for punishment, or, or was that sort of to do the egg in your face thing? You know, like hey, I well, did it. Uh, I thought. I thought I, exactly. I thought, I've got to bloody tell you I've done it, if nothing else. And um, But they weren't in, in, interested. In fact, nobody was interested at all uh, in what I'd done. And I, it was bizarre. It was almost as if they couldn't quite get their head around it. Um, because people in those days just didn't do kind of long, round-the-world motorcycle trips. I mean, in, in my entire two and a half years on the road, Robert was the only other motorcyclist I met. On the entire time. Wow. Because you just didn't, you didn't see people traveling on motorbikes. And I had, and, and before I left, I'd only uh, heard of one other person doing it. And when I was in Australia, I met this guy who had ridden uh, to, from Australia to Europe. And that was it. So that's two people I knew who'd done it. And I met one other person on the entire trip in two and a half years. Incredible. What, what a change nowadays. I mean, you, yeah. you couldn't. You can even get panniers or, or luggage or anything for your bike. You made panniers, sort of invented them w with a friend, didn't you? Yeah, well, it, that was the bloke that I met in Sydney who had ridden his bike from uh, from um, Australia to Europe, and he was an extraordinary man, lovely man called John Todd, 
and um, he had he had made this extraordinary contraption on his bike. I mean, if you think my uh, boxes and pannier panniers were, were were ugly, you should, <laughs> you should have seen his. He 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 had a whole aluminium fairing. He had an aluminium tank with an aluminium tank bag on it. He had. I mean, it was just extraordinary. I mean, you couldn't even see his bike because it was just completely covered in aluminium. Um, but John was lovely, and he sort of said, "Look, if, if you're going to the Far East and India and all these countries, you need something that you can that you can lock up so people don't steal all of your gear." So I spent three months in his, you know, with him in his garage every weekend, building my panniers, and he helped me. Um, and they were, yeah, and they got me all the way home. When you're planning to do this and you're you're building this, you're building it so you don't get things stolen. Did you need them? Was your stuff going to get stolen? Well, I don't know. Interestingly, because Robert, who I met, you know, the Dutch guy, he had BMW panniers, but then he just had a kind of loose bag tied on the back, which I have to say, it, I mean, it wasn't stolen. I mean, I mean, we had stuff stolen, um, you know, from our rooms or from our tents. But we actually didn't have stuff stolen off our bikes. And I think it was almost that that people, because these bikes were, uh, you know, looked such a kind of foreign thing to them. They'd, uh, I mean, in, in the Far East in India, they'd never even seen a BMW before or even a bike of that size before. And and so they're almost slightly afraid of it in a way. So, I, I, you know, they tended actually, I mean, apart from playing with all the, you know, with all of the controls, 50,000 times, um, <laughs> the actual the actual gear on the back, they pretty much left as it was. I, I think Robert had a plate stolen. He, he instead of putting the, his, you know, his metal plate inside his bag, he just strapped it um, on the back and that was nicked. But apart from that, um, we didn't have anything stolen off the bikes. I guess the thing is too, when they're looking at a great big bike that they've never seen of that size and then see a woman riding it, that's gotta, that's gotta make them think twice. Yeah, I mean, certainly in in um, in India, I think I just blew their minds. I mean, it was all I, I actually felt as if I was a sort of, you know, I mean, they looked at me as if I'd sort of dropped in from out of space. I mean, it really, really seriously. They they I mean, first of all, they'd never seen a bike like mine before. Then it had all this 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 huge aluminium contraption on the back, which they just couldn't work out what all that was about. And then it was ridden by a woman. I mean, it was just the whole thing <laughs> was just too much for them to absorb. And they just completely, their, their eyes are on stalks. You know, they, um, they couldn't believe what, what they were seeing. Uh, but that, you know, as I say, that, that's the kind of thing I found quite difficult to deal with because it was this constant attention and constantly being followed around and constantly stared at all the time. It really starts to get you down after a while. Yeah, I can imagine that wears on you. I mean, as I mentioned, the, the book is done. Um, it's a beautiful book, and it's a great read because you can flip to any spot in the book. I, I mean, I challenge anyone to pick it up off the shelf, so, uh, go to any page, and I think in about two paragraphs you're going to be drawn into the story. I, I really like the way it's written, but it's got so many details in it. And, and you mentioned diary and you mentioned tapes. Without those, there's no way you could have written this book. No, and I've and I've got and I took about two and a half thousand photographs as well. So, so between the the photos and all all my letters home, I kept, um, or my mum kept. 
So I had I had all my letters, uh, my diaries, my tapes, my photographs. Um, and in a bizarre way, I sent I sent all of my paperwork home. So all my shipping documents. So when I got to the end of a country and I or, uh, and I had to, you know, ship it home or whatever, everything I would every now and again, I'd parcel it all up and, and post it all home. So I've got everything, every wow. bit of document, every bit of paperwork. I've even got the little chits of where I went to temples in Thailand. That's incredible. I mean, there's there's so little that I have from way back in my life, and I think it's unusual to hang on to things. But it does show the importance, and that's why I brought it up, of the diary, of um, documenting sort of what we do in life. And, and I wish I did it more often. I mean, we have Graham Field um, uh, on our other show on a regular basis, and he documents his life on a regular basis. I just think it's so amazing because you can go back, and, and the, I do have some of it written. I do have some uh, uh, journal entries as I went through life. And when I go back to them, they take you back to that very moment. I'm sure when you read through your journal entries and when you're writing this book, it probably takes you back. You can smell the smells. You can remember the sights and the feeling that you had at the time. Yeah, absolutely. But I have to say, I've never kept a journal of any other part of my life. Is it right? It's oh. only, it's, yeah, it's only my trip. That was the only time I've ever written a diary and ever kept it. And I nearly threw all of it away as well. When I moved out of London in 1991, um, and I was moving house, um, and I had this cardboard box with all of my things in it, all my tapes, journals, everything. And I thought, well, nobody's interested in this. Nobody, you know, whatever. It's, it was 10 years ago since I came back from the trip, and I nearly threw it all away. And I thought, oh, well, maybe just keep on to it. Maybe one day I might look through it again. Mm-hmm. And uh, thank goodness I did. You know, it was it was great. Hello, Anna. Fairly early this morning, actually. I, I, um, it was a brilliant morning. It's really, really, really good. At one point during Elspeth's trip, her dad sent her a portable tape recorder and a tape so she could give a rundown of what was happening with her life at the time. She'd record these sessions and then mail them back home. Her dad would copy them to another tape so he could listen to them while he drove to work, and then he would erase the original one and mail it back to Elspeth for another recording. Here she's in Australia, circa about 1983. Brilliant um, national park. It's called Bald Bald Rock National Park, and it's the second largest outcrop of rock, uh, apart from Ayers Rock. So it's you know it's um, number two to Ayers Rock. And it's this huge granite um, rock outcrop, which I, I climbed to the top of. It took me about half an hour to do. Uh, it's really hot. Uh, but it was well, it was well worth it when I got to the top because it, it's on a sort of border between New South Wales and Queensland, so I could see, you know, back all the way I'd come, and I could see the the coast, you know, and sort of way miles up into Queensland. So it was really good. I can't remember how high it is. I think it's about. Um, Incredibly, her dad held on to all of her tapes. They had to be transferred and converted to digital for you to hear now. The tapes were forgotten and luckily kept in storage, and somehow they managed to survive through time. That's the thing with our own history. At the time, it doesn't seem worth recording, but in hindsight, it's an incredible record of life. 30 kilometers or whatever of dirt road, um, which wasn't fun. My, my poor old bike is. It's really being hammered. <laughs> it's, um, 
but it's standing up to it pretty well. Nothing's dropped off yet, and it seems to be going okay. I'm a bit worried about one of the valves. Um, it seems to be rattling an awful lot. So I think I'm, maybe when I get up to sort of Rockhampton or whatever, I may have a look. I mean, it's nothing desperate. I mean, it's, it's better too too loose than too tight. You can hear in her voice that she's relaxed and comfortable on her adventure, even when it comes to mechanical problems with her bike. And it makes you wonder what the folks at the magazines that dismissed her as incapable back in 1982, before she left, wonder what they would have thought about this young girl riding the world and fixing her motorcycle on the side of the road. Listen to this next piece where she has a fire that almost destroys her bike. And then, um... And then I had a small, <laughs> had a small fire on the bike, <laughs> which wasn't too brilliant. Um, it, it was, it was, it was really amazing. It was just, um, just, a, it was in the middle of nowhere, and there was this, there was this one roadhouse, and there was this auto electrician, and my bike chose to blow up uh, just outside this this auto electric, you know, auto electrician's place. And what had happened is wire under the petrol tank which had been rubbing against the frame. How, how the wire got there, I just don't know, because I haven't taken the tank off for months. And I, I can never, you know, remember the wire being there, so I don't know how the, how the hell it got there. Anyway, it was there, and it rubbed through, and it shorted out, and it burnt my entire electrics out. So I burnt my, all my electrical harness out. So it started off from under my tank, then the fire spread up to my headlight, burnt all my headlight out, then went back down to my alternator, my generator, and my rectifier, and finally to my starter motor. <laughs> so it was a fair old mess. So, I mean, I just, I didn't know what to do. I just leapt off the bike, and I got clouds of white smoke pouring from out the front of it, and I thought the whole thing was going to blow up. I really did. I thought I was going to lose, lose my bike. Um, I mean, something like that, there really isn't a lot you can do, because you just, I mean, just sort of panic sets in, and there wasn't a lot I could do anyway. So anyway, so I sort of wheeled it down to this auto electrician guy, and he sort of looked at it and, and almost had a fit. I mean, it, all all the wires had, because all the rubber, all the insulating around the wires had all stuck together, and all the and it was just one huge mass of, of burnt rubber and wire. It was just terrible. So I had to strip the whole bike and take all the wiring out and start all over again. So this took two days. Can you believe it? But he he, he was really nice actually because we both stayed up at his house, um, which was good. And, um, I mean, he, he, he did a brilliant job. I mean, he, he'd never seen or touched a BM before in his life. But fortunately, BMs are so like cars. I mean, most of the parts, I mean, the alternator and the starter motor and the, all that are straight from cars, straight from the BM cars. So it was fairly similar to, you know, to his car electronics that he, that he was, you know, trained for or whatever. So, um, anyway, he did an amazing job, and he, he worked on it solidly for two days. It was from 8 o'clock in the morning to about 8 o'clock at night. So I was really lucky, and he did a brilliant job. He sort of made up all the, all the harnesses himself, and at least now, because I sort of helped him, I worked with him and helped him do it, so at least now I know about most of my electrics on my bike, which is something was a, which was a fairly vague field before. So. What about a movie? I know you mentioned at one point. I, I really, what started all this was somebody approached you about the movie rights, didn't they? Yeah, I mean that's the other really bizarre thing was that after being um, so so in nineteen uh, sorry in two thousand and nine. So basically, my story had remained completely unknown 
for 25 years. Nobody knew about it at all, apart from a few, obviously my family and a few friends. And it was um, a, um, a journalist friend of mine was asked by BMW to just write a very short, short article. Uh, and they put that up on the BMW international website. And then from that, it got picked up by various other sites. It got blogged and shared and whatever. And over the next sort of five or six years, and it, I, I was completely, I, I had no knowledge of this at all. Uh, my story kind of spread around. Um, and then completely out of the blue in 2015, I was contacted by this agent in Hollywood who wanted to buy the the rights to make a film. So I'd, I'd kind of gone from nobody wanting nobody with any interest at all for 25 years to suddenly 30 years later being contacted by this agent in Hollywood who wanted to make a film. I mean, it was just completely mad. Um, so anyway, so I went out to Los Angeles and they were lovely to me, really, really kind. And um, but I think then I decided that actually the first stage was to write a book. And just so there's a proper act. And also, I hadn't looked at or read any of my diaries for 30 years. So I needed anyway to, you know, to try and remember what had happened. And because uh, it was such a long time ago. So I kind of said to them, thanks, but no thanks. Uh, let me do the book first. And then whatever would take it from there. Well, Elspeth, I wish you the best of luck with the book. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. The book is called Lone Rider, the first British woman to motorcycle around the world. And that was Elspeth Beard. Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free. maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. Best Rest Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire Iron Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you're going to want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system and will inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio, made in the USA and comes with a lifetime warranty. And Motorcycle Consumer News Magazine just chose the Cycle Pump as the MCM top pick in their recent compressor comparison. www.cyclepump.com Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. Turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using their unique strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. And that has gained them a top reputation for tough, reliable gear. www.greenchiliadv.com That's www.greenchiliadv.com The MotoBreeze chain oiler is powered by wind pressure that automatically adjusts for speed. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers oil to your chain with a felt pad that's mounted on your swing arm, which eliminates the problems of exposed nozzles near your sprockets. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets and forget about the messy spray oil. www.motobreeze.com. That's two eyes in there. www.motobreeze.com.
Well, that about wraps it up for another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and of course to you, the listener. Thank you very much. Hey, if you like what we're doing, you want to hear more? Drop by the website, www.adventureriderradio.com. You can listen to all of our episodes there, as well as the other show that we do, ARR Raw. That's a separate show. You need to subscribe separately for it, if you don't know that already. Drop by the website, check it out. Also, all the show notes are here from this episode and from every other episode that we do. There's more information on there. And this one in particular, we're going to have some audio from Al Smith. That, that Those pieces that you heard, we're going to have a little bit more there. So if you're interested in hearing more of that old audio, the vintage audio, drop by the website, look at the show notes for this episode. Hey, I want to give a shout out to those listeners that support the show. We really appreciate it. It makes a huge difference. It makes it so we can do it. So if you like what we're doing here and you want to keep it going, consider dropping by the website and clicking on the support button. Uh, there's a bunch of different ways to do it. Anything $10 or more is going to get you a sticker sent back at you. Anything $50 or more is going to get you a mention on our Raw show um, that we do at the start of every Raw show. And what we'd really love to see is those Patreon um, support go up. That's uh, what we signed up for. We had a bunch of people email about it. We signed up for Patreon which is a monthly thing where you can donate any amount monthly. It's very cool. Drop by the website, check it out. We'd love to have your support. Thanks very much. My name's Jim Martin. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike. See you next week. This is Spencer Conway from African Motorcycle Diaries, and you are listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 